And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. All right, friends, thank you so much for joining us for yet another episode of Startup Hustle Podcast. I am Lauren Conaway with Innovate Her KC. And just want to take a moment to say, tell you that today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. With us today, we have Alicia Kennedy, and Alicia is a an awesome attorney, and she is actually candidate for Missouri Lieutenant Governor, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her journey, but thank you so much for being here with us today, Alicia. Thank you, Lauren, for the invite. Absolutely. Well, so, so let's go ahead and just hop right into it. I am extremely intrigued. I really, really want to hear about your story. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and how you got here? Okay. Um, I'll try to make it condensed for purposes of this conversation. Um, <laughs> city native, born and raised, um, graduated from Northeast High School, public school here in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and um, Grew up in a, in a zip code which has been referred to as the murder factory, 64130 zip code, um, because at one point in time it had the most um, persons in, in the Department of Corrections that were on death row or, or were in custody for, um, for, for committing homicides. So I grew up in a very violent community, um, but I, I aspired to be a lawyer one day. And my interest was on community and economic development, doing things to rebuild my community and make change. Um, I took the long road to become an attorney, um, but graduating high school, I started working full-time my junior year of high school to help my mom out. I was raised by a single parent and um, became an entrepreneur very early, bought my first house at 18, started my business by the age of 20, um, and, um, you know, and had a very entrepreneurial mindset. Um, but because I always had a strong conviction about how to improve my community, I got involved in advocacy issues. And so uh, I had the flexibility as an entrepreneur to get involved and go to community meetings uh, and began to learn what advocacy really looked like to create change, whether it's public safety, making sure there was investments in my community because I was a business owner. I wanted to make sure that, you know, the conditions around my business were kept up really well. Um, I ultimately went to law school, closed my business, went to law school. And when I came back from law school, I went to law school in South Dakota. I'll tell you guys about that later. Um, ended up in the prosecutor's office, didn't do the community and economic development work I wanted because the real estate market was trash when I graduated in 2010. Uh, went and got some trial experience as a prosecutor and worked on community justice. So that's kind of how I came around the other way of the community and economic development. And so I, I was working on providing solutions for a community as a prosecutor. Um, and I realized that many of the issues we were dealing with were symptomatic and we really had to address the social and economic issues. So again, applying an entrepreneurial mindset to problem solving uh, is really what led me to politics because you wanna make change, you be at the table where changes are, are happening. And so I have the privilege now of working to create opportunities for entrepreneurs and disadvantaged communities and improving education and a number of other things 
Uh, and so now I'm taking that fight uh, to Jefferson City uh, in this upcoming election. That is amazing. Uh, so, so I have to tell you, one of the things that I think I admire most about you, and you and I have talked about this before, is the fact that you apply both entrepreneurial tendencies and a, a deep heart for wanting to to help and make the world better, particularly for disadvantaged communities. And I think that's that's a, a really interesting lens through through which to view your work. And so I, I find that so impressive. Where do you think that came from? You know, I will say, um, just I, I grew up in a very unique perspective. Uh, I, I have I had a very supportive family. And while we didn't have a lot, uh, I didn't really recognize how much we didn't have, right? And so um, being in a nurturing environment, it provides a level of confidence. And when I would see others that didn't have the same opportunities or um, that may have had, you know, be, have less than what we had, you know, I've always been the person to speak up for those individuals. I've just been that way all my life. Um, but I think when it comes to dealing with social and economic issues, we can't continue to take the same approach in dealing with them, expecting the elected official to solve all the problems. I think that the business community and um, Joe citizens like you and I, um, who are closest to the issues, are better able to solve them uh, with the right resources. And so that's kind of where I, I found my lane, uh, speaking up on issues, working with other stakeholders to help make you know, make things happen because you have to do that as, a, as an entrepreneur, right? You know, I didn't get this loan when yeah. I started my first business. Um, I had to find ways to make it happen. And it's the same way when you're trying to solve community problems, you have to find ways and partnerships to make things happen um, effectively. Yeah. Well, so, and this is not your first um, foray into the political realm. Um, you served as a city councilwoman for the city of Kansas City for, for how long? Four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I won my first election. Um, yeah, first time out. That's amazing. <laughs> so, so tell me, you know, first of all, what inspired you to run for for city government? Again, when I was in the prosecutor's office, I was assistant prosecutor in Jackson County, Missouri, and um, the elected prosecutor hired me uh, on our executive staff to work on community justice, being working with neighborhood groups um, to proactively address violent crime, which is a awesome opportunity, uh, particularly as a young lawyer. And, and and I was able to go back into the community, the same communities I grew up in and, and provide some resources and solutions. But after having meeting after meeting, when you kind of do the outline, okay, here are the problems. And then you say, where are the solutions? I spent maybe six months meeting with stakeholders to find out who owned these, owned these problems, who had ownership and responsibility of providing resources or addressing these key issues, whether it was dealing with at-risk youth or dealing with blighted properties or dealing with, you know, all these social and economic issues. You know, you had a large population of people who were coming back from prison with re-entry. And um, it was really challenging to match up uh, organizations and entities that had ownership of these issues. And that was really surprising, but, but it explained why the conditions were the way they were. There were groups that had received funding to do the work, but didn't have the relationships or have the effectiveness in the community. And then there were groups who were close to the problem and wanted to do the work, but just didn't have capacity. And so after kind of seeing how this hodgepodge was happening, and then you had groups that had the overarching understanding of what was happening, but wasn't, but, but had not been dedicated 
to being solution oriented. They were just advocates on issues. Um, and so I decided to run for city council because after meeting with people for six months, they were like, well, the council person really could be the person to convene a court, you know, coalesce all these things. And, and that was true. Um, and so I ran for city council to do just that. And, um, and I really enjoyed that experience. But even in that time on the council, I realized that oftentimes the budget is already spent. You don't really have much wiggle room on uh, where other things are able to go unless these issues become priority, uh, which is what led me to run for mayor in 2019 after my first term. And so uh, that I, I ran on that campaign. We cannot continue to build Kansas City on the backs of the poor. Um, and that we have to find a way to be more equitable in how we allocate taxpayer dollars um, to address the issues that, because public safety is you know, a huge part of our budget. Well, it's a huge part of the budget because they're responding to these social and economic dysfunctions in the community. And so if we invest in those things, we're able to save money on the back end. And so that was not for, that was not popular in 2019 when I ran for mayor, but that is exactly what the social advocates are saying right now and this Black Lives Matter movement, when they're saying defund police, basically they're saying invest in communities. Um, don't The police are not the solution to every crime uh, or every community problem. Let's invest in communities and make them better. And and, and I, I agree with that approach. Yeah. Well, and so, so one of the things that I think um, you and I both knew we were going to talk about today, and, and you just provided us with a really great segue, is, you know, let, let's talk about systemic oppression. Um, so one of the things that you're just super passionate about is finding ways to fight systemic oppression through economic development. And so I kind of wanted, I, I wanted to just ask you to dig a little bit more deeply there, like what are your plans or your thoughts around ways that we can um, better our society and end these, these systemic oppressions through economic development? Well, I, I, you know, in, in, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, and the scriptures say that money answereth all things. It didn't say it was everything, but it answereth all things. And I believe most issues that we're dealing with, if they're, if, if the solutions are properly funded, uh, we're able to eradicate a lot of these concerns. Um, now, the scriptures also say, "The poor you will have with you always." I'm not saying we're trying to end poverty. What I'm saying is that we're the goal is to improve quality of life. Uh, for people who want better, right? To create access to opportunity. And when I talk about disadvantaged communities, I'm not talking about race in general. I'm talking about socioeconomic conditions. That also includes women business owners, because I can tell you that if you look at the data, even though women business owners are kind of the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs, we face unique challenges in business than men do, right? And right. so that makes does disadvantage to some extent, which is why you have the ability to get the you know, WBE designation um, and doing business and getting contracts. And so being an advocate for those individuals that uh, otherwise are marginalized and don't, you know, have a, a have, have all the same access points, so to speak, uh, that's really important to me. Uh, and so, you know, leading on that work and, and collaborating with those stakeholder groups, running statewide, I'm talking with people in rural Boot Hill, Missouri, down at Cape Girardeau, um, and, you know, about the conditions down there and their access to health care and, you know, why hasn't there been a stronger response to addressing those things? So I can go on and on. You can, you know, kind of write me in if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> I would never. Uh, so, so, of course, you, you know me, I've got a... Uh 
definite soft spot, a definite passion for, for women's issues. So anytime you talk about that, I could talk about that all day. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, so do you have any, I, I know that you're kind of in the midst of campaigning for Lieutenant governor at the moment. Um, do you have any specific economic plans or specific, um, paths forward that you want to talk about? Yes, 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 yes. I think when you look at, um, the state of Missouri, we are well positioned to lead uh, on innovation in the areas of technology and agriculture. And I think that it's important for us to prioritize uh, those initiatives to make sure that we are attracting the best talent. We have some of the top universities, learning institutions in the country here in the state of Missouri. How are we retaining that talent? How are we attracting uh, people who uh, are, are leading in innovation uh, in these areas to come to the state of Missouri uh, or Kansas City or St. Louis or Springfield um, to to make those investments here to do that work because you know it, it's happening and we don't want them to you know go to Texas or the East Coast or other places um, because but people are looking for quality of life. I think Missouri has uh, the ability to offer really good quality of life. It's still very affordable. But we have to be intentional about how we allocate our public dollars to um, to encourage and support uh, startups, as well as to provide opportunities for expansion opportunities as well. Um, and so when you have those opportunities in place and you're leading on innovation uh, and technology and agriculture, that creates economic opportunities in other realms as well. So that's communications, that's you know, suppliers. That's, I mean, there's so many other things that come along with that if we're able to grow businesses here locally uh, and support uh, support our own, for lack of a better word. I think that has to be the number one thing that we look at because we have to be able to grow the pie because the needs are so great. Another way that we do that is by expanding Medicaid. That issue is on the ballot, thank God, uh, August the 4th. Um, what that means by expanding Medicaid is that we are able to uh, ensure those 100,000 children that the current governor drop from the, from the, 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 the Medicaid rolls. Um, this provides access to affordable quality health care for working families that otherwise can't afford insurance in the private market. It also uh, helps provide funding for uh, rural hospitals and people in those communities that currently have to drive an hour or two hours to get to uh, a quality health care facility that they can afford. Um, the, the business case for expanding Medicaid suggests that um, the, the net return to Missouri is about $2 billion uh, in jobs and uh, medical facilities. We've closed uh, at least eight hospitals in the last year and a half here in Missouri because of inadequate funding for health care. We need to expand Medicaid. It doesn't matter what your party affiliation is. It's money on the table for us. Uh, it only benefits us, and it, it helps improve quality of life for so many Missourians, particularly those outstate. Kansas City is fortunate because we have the health levy. Uh, we have really good safety net clinics and hospitals in Kansas City, but that's not the case across the state. Um, so advocating on those issues. And then lastly, but most importantly, dealing with gun violence. Again, still neighborhood issues are near and dear to my heart. We have to look at how we're going to uh, put in some sensible gun safety laws in, in the state of Missouri. And it's not just gun violence in urban communities. Missouri has three of the top deadliest cities in the nation, the top 15, Kansas City, St. Louis, and Springfield, Missouri. Believe it or not, Springfield, Missouri is number 15 of deadliest cities on the FBI list. That's unacceptable to have three of your largest cities on the top 15 list. And Missouri is, you know, literally in the middle of the map. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily assume that here, but but that speaks to the climate 
uh, and the legislators' unwillingness to to do things to to uh, push forward legislation on sensible gun safety laws. I believe in, in in the Second Amendment. I think people need to have the right to carry. But I, but when we see the effect of that is that um, uh, gun related deaths are the number two leading cause of children. Uh, that gun violence is the number one leading cause okay. of death for uh, black men. Uh, it's one of the top leading cause of death for white men. And women of color are five times as likely to be murdered in domestic violence with a, a, a gun uh, than others. So it's it's a problem that we need to figure out how we're going to solve it. And again, this is another issue that's going to require bipartisan support because this is affecting everyday people's lives, sure. not just one group. Well, and I, I, I love what you're saying. Um, so talk to me a little bit. I, I want to dig a little bit deeper here. When you talk about sensible gun law, sensible gun reform, what specifically are you referring to? I think we need to have some honest conversations about what's happening. You know, the answer is not take away yeah. guns. That's not the answer, right? So let's just get that out there. That's not the answer. The answer is what are we doing in the situations where people uh, are, uh, are, I mean, the number of children that are, are killed by, by guns is, is alarming. It's alarming. So that's a problem right there. And so what do we do in those situations to provide either better education or more accountability to mitigate that, those situations from happening? Because that's, a, that's, that's what we've got to deal with. These are innocent children uh, and, and maybe an irresponsible parent or something, or, or they maybe the curious children. And, you know, the, we're just not handling uh, our, our right to have a gun in the house in a way that keeps our kids safe. That's number one. Number two, um, instances of domestic violence. Again, you know, women are five times more likely to be murdered with a gun in a domestic violence situation. I don't know if the answer to that is, um, you know, us being more intentional about how we handle the arrest and prosecution or about how we handle those persons who are the aggressor and their ability to have a gun. You know, it's a hard conversation, but we need to look at it holistically and figure out what is what are the best interventions on how to do with that. And then as we talk about, you know, gun violence in urban cities, that's a whole nother conversation um, because I, I believe that that is a very complex issue uh, and one that we need to have those who have been impacted by gun violence and those who are called to enforce on it. Um, and, and that includes the judge, the jury, the prosecution. I mean, you know, everybody needs to be lined up around this table to have the conversation about how do we begin to address it? Because I don't believe that guns end up itself kill people because, you know, I'm a gun owner. But I think that you have people who have access to firearms that may not uh, demonstrate the highest level of competence on how to handle, um, you know, when they're upset. I mean, the first thing I do is not get my gun when I'm upset. Um, how do we better vet those, in, you know, who has access and, and how do we determine, uh, you know, kind of like their risk levels. We were saying, talk about mental health checks and things like that. Now, that doesn't solve all of them, but I think it at least trains people to say, yes, you have a gun, but this is what is okay and not okay, you know, to you that like police are trained, you don't put your finger on the trigger unless you plan on right. pulling it, right? Like you, you hold the gun, but you don't put your finger on the trigger. That way there are no accidents. You're trained on how to handle the gun. So many people have guns and aren't trained, don't know the proper way to use them, and or the, the right perspective on uh, on on when it's necessary. And so I think those are opportunities for us to look at that. Yeah. Well, so so I'm gonna switch switch lanes a little bit because I'm gonna I want to delve more deeply into your plan for entrepreneurship. So so here in Kansas City. Um, 
Casey SourceLink, every year they put out a report called the We Create Report, and it uh, kind of drills down on numbers uh, insofar as how entrepreneurship and startups spur economic growth here in our city. And I, I think um, last week's report said that um, startups and entrepreneurs were responsible for 60% of net new jobs in the Kansas City area. And so, so that is, that's a huge economic driver. Um, it's a huge economic, economic opportunity. And yet you still see large corporations receiving a lot of tax benefits, receiving a lot of incentives to, you know, build in certain areas and grow in certain areas. And so, so I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that and then maybe hear some of your plans for, you know, if, if you're to, to win that Lieutenant Governor seat, what are some of your plans to um, spur that economic growth statewide? Okay. Um, I love the, the focus of this question because when you talk about entrepreneurship, it is the backbone of, of business in America. And when we are able to create an environment that cultivates um, a, a support system for entrepreneurs that provides resources for them to be able to compete competitively uh, with adequate resources um, to be able to, to thrive, essentially, I think you end up with a much different environment. I mean, that's really look at Silicon Valley and, and what was it, you know, the, the result of that by them creating this, this climate, this culture, um, that, that encouraged this competitiveness and innovation there. Um, it doesn't matter what the business is in Missouri. We're in the heart of America. We are a transportation hub. Um, you have, uh, the ability to, you know, get access to high-speed internet, and we have some of the best financial institutions in the state, education institutions in the state. How are we leveraging all those resources to make economic impact and spur economic growth? I think when we talk about the overall agenda for the state of Missouri, as a lieutenant governor, you have the responsibility to promote tourism for the state, which is extremely important. But I also have the ability to advocate on issues that are going to improve quality of life, and economic growth opportunities. And so those are the things that we have to continue to push down the road. If, if someone has the greatest you know, way to make widgets, how are we making sure that we're getting behind that uh, idea uh, and, and providing them with the necessary resources to really grow that, right? Um, and then their ability to scale up and employ other people. Um, and, and as well as their ability to mentor other businesses similarly situated that can come along beside them and provide supplies, suppliers, uh, professional services, um, the marketing piece of it, um, the logistics, the supply uh, supply chain piece of it. So there, it's like a, a wheel and spokes that, that come off of that. And so for us to begin to look at it in a much broader way on how we're going to be intentional about growing these opportunities. Because so oftentimes good businesses are doing great business here in, in Missouri or in Kansas City. Um, and then they're doing business with the other pieces, the ancillary businesses outside of the state. And so how do we better coordinate to make sure we're all working together to grow to grow the economic base here in Missouri in that same way, adding adding job growth opportunities, increasing the number of women business owners in the midst of that um, uh, and, and, and creating a very healthy culture of competitiveness where we are leading on innovation and technology here in the state. Yeah. 
Well, so, so I, and I, of course, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, I, I think it's really important to make it as easy as possible and remove as many barriers as possible for people to start and lead businesses. And I, I, everybody benefits. What, what is it? It's, it's a rising tide lifts all boats kind of deal. That is what they say. That's what they say. But one of the things that we recognize, and you've been a part of this conversation during my time on the city council, um, you know, when it comes time to budget time and we're looking at how much are we investing in small businesses, it doesn't reflect our, 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 our right. narrative, right? Uh, the commitment has to match the rhetoric. And what we saw in Kansas City during the budget process, uh, my last term on the count, my last year on the budget cycle on the council, 2019, and even what we saw this year, 2020, uh, there's a big fight uh, on your competing and so many other things to get a piece of that pie. Um, even though the return on investment, what what uh, small businesses bring back to the general fund and earnings tax and otherwise, um, the business case is there for them to you know be more investments to be made. Um, but but understanding how to advocate for a, a, for a um, for a comparable allocation of dollars that starts way before the budget process starts. That starts with educating the uh, the policymakers and legislators on what uh, the business community is doing, not just the economic impact, but also the cultural impact, um, the job growth numbers, so that they already are educated when they're looking at those line items to say, okay, this, this group is adding value to the community. How do we add value so they can do more? And, and I think that's gonna be one of the key things as we go forward, getting the entrepreneurial community to be able to pivot into that space. Because oftentimes we're technicians. When I was in the salon industry, I was a technician. Uh, even as a lawyer now, I'm at my private practice, I'm a technician in a number of ways. But you have to carve out time to align with others to, to do the advocacy and, 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 and do the lobbying, so to speak, to get the requisite respect of, uh, of, of the government entities. Yeah. Well, and so I think that, so one of the things that, that you and I have talked about in the past, and I, you and I have been in on several conversations around budgetary allotments and allocations, um, mm-hmm. but so so I think one of the, the challenges to overcome or opportunities that the entrepreneurial community has is figuring out a way to communicate that data in, in, in a way that is palatable <laughs> to, to our civic leaders, our elected leaders, to our community stakeholders and we're finding that healthy mix of quantifiable and qualitative data um, to be able to share. And so I'm wondering um, if you have, I mean, do you have any, any stories or any anecdotes about um, kind of effective advocacy in the entrepreneurial space that you've seen? Yeah, I think in a situation such as that, and we've, like you said, we've had a lot of conversations about it. Because most entrepreneurs are new to to this approach, you know, one of the easiest ways to be able to 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 explain the value at uh, is through storytelling, you know. And you know, here is here is um, here is uh, David, and you know, David, um, you know, was unemployed and had been for a number of years for whatever reason. Um, you know, this small business was able to give David an opportunity. Uh, now David is able to provide for his family uh, and is, you know, self-sufficient and, and is adding value and is, you know, whatever, maybe, maybe, maybe the manager now, I don't know. Here is this community that was otherwise blighted and this entrepreneur came in and saw vision 
and took this dilapidated building and turned it into something that was productive, um, that provided fresh and healthy food for this community, created some jobs, and really sparked the revitalization of others to come alongside them. And here's been the overall economic impact. Now you have, you know, a half a block that's been redeveloped as a result of it. You know, these are the aren't, these are the tax revenues that are being generated from these parcels that otherwise weren't producing anything. I mean, you you do it twofold, right? And then in addition to that, you also have to be mindful about, um, you know, providing them with the, the the data, the numbers, right? And so some people see numbers, and if they're not, you know, enough commas in them, they don't think it's significant. But with small businesses, it's not always a lot of how many commas is involved in it. It's how much impact and social impact. Or, or a result of those investments that were made, uh, particularly when you don't have any large backing behind you. Some people are using their savings. Some people are bootstrapping, working full time and doing their businesses. And then, you know, and in, in, in business owners are not just brick and mortar. Those small scale developers that are revitalizing those blighted neighborhoods I talked about in the beginning that I wanted to improve, those are small businesses as well. All those LLCs, those are small businesses that are going in and revitalizing and providing affordable housing in uh, a lot of these communities. And so it all works together because you're not gonna put, most people are not inclined to put a business that they want to be successful in a high risk, high crime community. And so someone has to go in and be willing to make that initial investment to clean it up. Those are entrepreneurs. And so how do we motivate them and incentivize them to be those, those pioneers in that way to go in and be the first um, so that it can spark the economic development, uh, be the catalyst for economic development that we all want and desire in our communities. Yeah. Well, so, so of course, I, gosh, I, I love talking to you about this stuff. It always just, it, it always makes me feel so passionate and enthusiastic. You, you get me fired up. Uh, so, so once again, I'm going to switch lanes on you a little bit. I, I want to talk to you about your, your leadership journey, because I, I think that you're just, you're so interesting in that, you know, you started off as an entrepreneur and then you were a lawyer and then you were a politician and you, you've been all of these things and done all of these things. And I, I can't help but think that, you know, you, you have such a wide range of knowledge. Um, and you, it, and it feels like you have a lot of like curiosity and passion to attack things from different angles and through different lenses. And so I'm just kind of wondering, where do you think that came from? Well, first of all, do you think that's correct? And secondly, do you, where do you think that came from? Um, I think that's a fair assessment, uh, that I am, I am very passionate about uh, empowering others and improving quality of life very much so. I think it's fair to say. Um, where did that come from? I just, I honestly believe it's just a, a conviction that I, I got, you know, just a conviction that I've had for, for a long time. Uh, I, like I said, I can think back to when I was in school, you know, sticking up for people, you know, getting in trouble, standing up for somebody else who either couldn't or wouldn't speak up for themselves. Uh, anytime I saw, you know, something that was unfair speaking out for those things. And so that was, and that's what made me say, okay, well, I'll be a lawyer because that's what lawyers do, right? Um, but then I also wanted to improve quality of life in other meaningful ways too, because as I, be, my undergrad degree is in finance. And so when I began to understand that most young people who grew up in the environment that I did aren't likely to have the outcomes that I've had and the successes that I've had, and it's not because they aren't intelligent. It's not because um, they aren't hardworking. It's a lot of time because they aren't exposed to the opportunities. 
And so how do we um, more effectively inspire these young people um, to do some great things? How do we more effectively expose them to ways for them to plug in and create change in their community and add value to society? Um, how do we uplift um, these families that you know, want to remain in these communities and help make it better? Because again, I'll go back to what I said before, the elected officials don't have all the answers. They don't. Just like when you ask me about gun violence, what do we do? I didn't say I had the magic answer. I said, we need to line everybody up who's impacted and involved and let's have an honest conversation about what we need to do. Because I have an approach, but it's limited. You know, I'm not, on, I'm not the person who shot someone or had been shot. You know, their, their answer is gonna be something different. And so I firmly believe in anything that I'm doing using my platform to empower others to create change. And so I like that you say that you're inspired by our conversation because while you're an amazing entrepreneur and collaborator uh, and you're very innovative, uh, I also want you to be comfortable using your voice to create change in your area of influence as well. And so you're doing that through this podcast, bringing thought leaders to the table, but you're also going to be able to do it more effectively as it relates to policy and, uh, and, and, and allocating funding because you're going to have some really um, meaningful stories to tell and examples uh, to share to be able to, to demonstrate why this work is important. Yeah. Well, so, so speaking of, you know, civic engagement and figuring out ways that people can be more engaged, you recently, I, I think you recently led a, was it a webinar or a, an online event about um, civically engaging in ways that you can do so? Is that right? There, so that tell me a little correct. bit about that. What were some of the the key takeaways that you could maybe share with our, our listeners now? Like if you if you want to get involved, what's a what's a good path? What's a good way? Uh, thank you for referencing that. And that uh, was done on Facebook Live. You guys can check it out on uh, my uh, Alicia ESQ page on Facebook. And it was shifting from from protesting to empowerment. Um, this was, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were at the height of the protests that were going on here in Kansas City. And some people were like, why are they protesting? And some people were like, well, when are they going to stop protesting? Uh, and then there are people who were at the protests were saying, okay, what are we going to do next? And so people were looking for some direction. Okay, what, what does this look like? You know, do we protest forever? What are we asking for? You know, and, and, and kind of going down those lines. And so I tried to approach the, the, those three key questions. Why are they protesting? They're protesting against police brutality. They're protesting against systemic racism uh, in the areas of criminal justice, healthcare, education are the three major areas. Um, and, and, and how are we going to challenge the, the, uh, these systems on creating equity? Um, so that was the, the you know, why. And then the, there are people who were saying, well, when are they going to stop? Well, they, there's no intent on stopping until change happens in, in the areas of um, accountability when it comes to police brutality. And we began to really address the systemic racism that exists in these, in these core industries that impact quality of life for others. Um, and then the question for those saying, okay, I was at the protest. I was there for three days. I got arrested. I got tear gas. That's a hard life. What's, what, what else can I do? Because I can't sustain this <laughs> indefinitely. Uh, or I want to be in the protest, but the nature of the work I do, or because I'm high risk for COVID, it's just not really safe for me to be in those environments. And so providing access to other ways to use your voice for advocacy. And so those other paths I suggested was, while protesting is very effective to get the attention of policymakers and, and you have a very clear call to action, 
um, there are people who are going to have to amplify those voices as well. And so those are people who are crafting the clear vision of what's being suggested. Those people who are uh, organizing behind the scenes, people know where to show up, how to show up, you know, kind of set the rules of engagement about what's happening on the back end. So that's an opportunity for you to get involved and not be at the actual rally. Um, people who provided supplies for the protesters, people who are legal observers, making sure their rights are being protected, um, people who are writing policy changes to say local government, state government, federal government, these are things we want to want you to change. We want you to modify the use of force um, uh, standards um, so that we are able to more object, uh, have a more objective uh, viewpoint of that. We want to make sure that police aren't using tear gas on civilians. We want, I mean, so there are specific things that people can craft and legislation to present. Uh, and then there are people who should run for something. You've marched, now you need to run for something. And preparing those individuals who are passionate and have a clear idea, just like me, who saw the opportunities for change, instead of waiting for someone else to be that change, you get involved and you position yourself to run for, for elected office uh, to make those things happen. And so there's all different levels of it. And I gave examples of three different individuals who saw a problem. There was some form of protest or public de demonstration involved. One was it relates to Lee Summit School District. The other one, it was a, it relates to um, when voters uh, voters uh, say was being disenfranchised uh, on, a, on a city procedure. And then another one was as relates to the current protests where um, the police were uh, unlawfully, uh, well, they were basically they were violating a number of uh, residents' civil rights, uh, and they were present and they were advocating against that. And, and the steps each of them took from seeing it, something happen, to say, I'm going to do something about it, to organizing people after the fact. So the acronym was do something. S is to strategize. You got to put together a strategy. O is to organize. Organize people around the strategy to, to help you make it happen. Uh, M is to mobilize. You, then you mobilize people to go do whatever you guys plan to do. And then E is to engage and energize. Now you've got to engage the larger public around the plan uh, and keep them energized until the thing is sought out to completion. Um, it's very simple, but it is a process and most people are not used to being involved in things long term. So do something is an acronym where you can easily say, okay, what is the issue? Now I want to do something about it. Strategize, organize, mobilize and then engage and energize others to come along with us. Uh, I think those are some key steps for those who are looking for ways to plug in to social change, uh, whether you directly impacted or as an ally. Uh, but, but those are some key fundamental things on uh, having a very structured way to measure change and make it happen. Wow, I, I love that. So, so I'm going to ask you a what is hopefully a very quick question, but I, I actually just kind of want to share a factoid. Um, so, and I think I heard this from Wendy Doyle over the Women's Foundation, but it, it, the statistic is something along the lines of: in order to run for office, on average, a woman has to be asked three times in order to run mm -hmm. before she will consider it. Um, and it has. Yeah, I, there, I'm sure that there are a lot of reasons behind it. It has to do with imposter syndrome. It has to do with um, a lack of confidence in history and experience and ability. Um, so I just wanted to ask really quickly, did you have to be asked or did you did you just kind of run for office on your own? Uh, I will say the um, my first time when I ran for city council, um, it was suggested because remember I spent six months meeting with stakeholder groups trying to figure out who I could work with to solve these problems. Mm -hmm. And um, someone said, 
You know, if you're looking for somebody to solve the problem, sometimes you're that somebody. Like if you can't find that person, then then you're probably that somebody. Like somebody should do something about this. Well, if, if no one owns the issue, um, then you're probably that somebody. And so that was kind of the impetus of me exploring me running for public office the first time. Um, and, 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 and I ran against the grain. Uh, I ran for a seat that uh, in a district that was some of the, the politics of it were very nuanced. Uh, I was the only woman who ran uh, in a contested primary. There were four other people in my primary, I think, one, two, yeah, four other people in my house. So I was one of five and I was the only woman. And I came in first in my primary against uh, someone who was considered an elder statesman who had been in politics longer than I've been alive. Um, so that was my first run. It was very hard fought, um, but I was very committed to why I was running and I was willing to stick it out. Um, the next, the next uh, election cycle that I was involved in um, when I ran for mayor, uh, I was not asked. I had had enough experience at City Hall and understanding how the budget allocation went that I knew that another term on the council was not going to solve it. And I needed to be in a position to prioritize the budget um, uh, concerns uh, to address some of the things I thought were very important. I wasn't willing just to kind of sit on the sideline for another four years. Um, so that that's what, but now this race for Lieutenant Governor, I was asked to run um, because of how well I performed in the mayor's race and demonstrated the ability to draw from broad constituencies uh, and how effective I campaign. So each experience has been different. Yeah. All right. Well, so so we are about to to wrap up here, but I do want to ask you a silly question, and I think my question is going to be, Alicia, what is your favorite Kansas City food? Barbecue. <laughs> Any particular restaurant, or do you not want to say? Um, <laughs> I have two favorites. I have two favorites. I'll I'll divulge. Um, um, Gates Barbecue because uh, the Gates brand has I've, I've known it all my life and you know um, it, and it speaks Kansas City and it reminds me of home. Uh, another barbecue establishment I like I love the smoked wings from Jackstack and so that's kind of like you know my signature thing and cheesy corn and so something I can't get at Gates you know that I'll go to Jackstack for. <laughs> All right. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for being here with us today. I I just love talking to you. This has been this has been great. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. I hope I've encouraged or inspired someone to go beyond being a business owner uh, and also being a catalyst for change as well. I love that. And what a perfect note to close on. Uh, so, so once again, just want to say today's episode of Startup Hustle was sponsored by Fullscale.io. You can find us on Instagram at Startup Hustle Podcast or check out our YouTube channel. Thanks so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.